Unleavened Bread Ministries presents from your hands, your feet, your side. Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels. Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Father, we thank you for this day. We ask your mighty blessings upon it, upon all of us who are looking to you um, for your blessings, your, your provision every day. We love you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus lives in us. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, we're going to continue with We Need to Check Ourselves, number six. And I'm going to share with you on speaking grace in love and faith. So when we speak faith into people, they get grace. For by grace have you been saved through faith. Uh, There is a place for condemnation but not in the life of one who truly wants to obey and be holy. These people need grace to do the works of God, but condemnation is contrary to faith and robs them of the very power of God they need. We feel Paul's pain under the slavery of condemnation until he got the revelation of faith, which is a free gift of God's power, to do his will. Romans 7 and 15 says, For that which I do I know not, for not what I would that do I practice, but what I hate that I do. But if what I would not that I do, I consent unto the law that it is good. So now it's no more I that do it, but the sin which dwelleth in me. For I delight, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see a different law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity under the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And also in 8, 8 and 1 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. So we want to always have grace for those who suffer like Paul did. Colossians 4 and 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Once in a church that I was teaching in, there were two ladies who were running around gossiping. So I talked to them in front of another elder uh, about it, but they just jumped on my case and 
and rebuked me right back. I, I felt real calm and quiet in my soul, and the Lord spoke to me. He said, they're going to get sick. Well, I didn't say a word back to them, uh, and uh, the other elder was there. And that night, both of those ladies went to the hospital with unrelated illnesses, not knowing about one another. Uh, one of them had my migraine headaches, and it turned out to be a tumor. And the other one had a kidney infection. And they asked that, uh, that other elder, why did this happen? And the guy had sense enough to say, because you rebuked an elder. You judged him, and he was right. Well, when they came to me and asked my forgiveness, I prayed for both of them, and the Lord healed them both. So I've thought, how many times in my youth have I mistakenly judged someone? They judged me when I was doing the work of the Lord, and I knew I was doing the work of the Lord. But then the Lord judged them for rebuking an elder. They were judging me, and the Lord judged them. They didn't know that they were going to be judged. They didn't know that they were doing wrong. So you know it's always a dangerous thing to take it upon yourself to judge anybody whom the Lord has put in authority. Uh, we can be living under a curse right now because of the way that we're treating other people. But we're not doing the work of the Lord if we're not putting faith in people's hearts. Now, there is a place for condemnation, and I don't want to leave that out. Uh, when there is willful disobedience, the blood of Jesus doesn't cover it. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more a sacrifice for sins. But even then, it, it says, Ye who are spiritual, restore such a one. Galatians 6 and 1. So there's no way to restore anybody except they move past a place of condemnation and come into faith because that's the only way to get grace. And without grace, you don't overcome. And without faith, you don't get grace. So our prayer should be, Lord, uh, just give us your grace to be graceful and preach the good news and bring these poor people out from under the condemnation and judgment of the devil. I think sometimes we misjudge love. Sometimes we don't necessarily feel what we have called love. That emotional feeling about people. Love in the scriptures, agape love, is always tied to obedience. We're never even asked to phileo God. We're asked to agape God. And Jesus said, if you love, that's agape, me, you will keep my commandments. John 14 and 15. 
So a proof of scriptural love is obedience, not the mushy feelings that we get from emotions. The uh, proof that you love God is, do you obey Him? And that's what we need to pray for. We need to ask to be able to love God because if we have that, we will obey Him. And again, that's not an emotional love. God doesn't trust emotions that are not motivated by love. And He doesn't want us to trust them either when they're physical and of the flesh. They can be used by God and they can be a great blessing, but they can just as easily be used by the devil. And that's what is so untrustworthy about emotions. They're schizophrenic in a way. They're following the spirit one minute and following the flesh the next. So you're kind of up and down, up and down, right? So the Lord wants to wean us away from that. You probably know people who do this with the Lord. It's because they follow emotions and they're not stable in the Word. And we need to be based on the Word. Some people claim phileo love is a human love, but that's not true either. I've found places in the Scripture where God phileo loved Jesus and uh, where God agape loved Jesus. So phileo is not just a human love. However, we're not asked to phileo God. We're asked to agape God enough to obey Him. You can't make yourself feel mushy and emotional in your heart toward God, but you can do that love of obedience, which is what God asks. And just because you don't feel something, it doesn't mean it's not there. That's why we're not supposed to be based on feeling, but we're supposed to be based on the Word. And the, the more you grow in, with God, the more He's going to wean you away from your feelings and put you on the rock. So let our feelings be His feelings, right? If you obey the Word, uh, your feelings will follow His feelings. The rock is the Word, and emotions have to be uh, the water swirling around the rock because there's nothing stable about them. But God wants to wean us, and the more we grow with God, the more we'll be weaned away from feelings and emotions which can be easily manipulated by the enemy. Some people think that if they don't feel something, they didn't get healed, or if they don't feel something, God didn't hear them. We're not asked to believe any such thing. We're asked to believe all things whatsoever you pray and ask for. Believe that you received them. Mark 11 and 24. There is not necessarily any kind of feeling that goes along with that. And as a matter of fact, the more you grow with God, probably the less you will get feelings because God wants to wean you away from them so that you don't trust in them, so that you don't consider that things are yea or nay because of your feelings. 
Did you know God wants us to believe in the Word and trust in the Word? You don't have to feel anything to do that. You know, there are people who say that you have to have a rhema word. You have to have God speak a special word out of the word to you before you can stand upon it. Well, these people never get very much from God, I have to tell you. Um, and that's just really hogwash. You, you don't have to do a thing but believe what this Bible says and stand on it. Yes, God can give you a rhema, but I tell you, uh, every word in here is a rhema if you are humble to it. That's the whole point. Are you humble to what the Bible says? Does God have to talk to you when he's already talked to you through his word? Of course, he can do it, but he doesn't have to. He can speak one of these words to you, and he can confirm it with a dream or a vision, or he can speak to your heart, but he doesn't have to. Everything in the Bible is rhema if you're humble to it. If you just believe the Word and you stand on the Word with no need for feelings one way or the other, otherwise you will be a hearer but not a doer. People who think that they have to have feelings will likely not obey. I've proven in my own life that I don't have to feel a thing. I can pray and feel nothing. And even though I just pray and don't feel a thing sometimes, the word is still true. And if you're dogmatically determined to say that, the word is true and everything else is a lie. Just like the Bible says, let God be found true, but every man a liar. Romans 3 and 4. Then what you've prayed for is going to happen. It'll work. And that's all you need. I've known people who believed they have to have what they call a rhema before they will believe. And they don't see miracles, healings, deliverances, and provisions commonly. So outside of the emotions and feelings, the Word is all you need. Stand on the Word. Accept only scriptural thoughts in your mind. Reject everything else that exalts itself against the true knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10 and 5. And resist every temptation to avenge disobedience. 2 Corinthians 10 and 6. Or to correct people without the anointing of the Lord. Now, I want to point out something else here, too. Uh, the Lord will not ever use you to correct somebody if you have the same problem. That's, that's what a lot of people do. He'll use a person who has uh, overcome in that area to correct that person. But if you have that problem, don't ever think the Lord's going to use you to correct somebody else with it. We are told to be ready to avenge all disobedience when your obedience shall be made full. Okay, who can say that? God can say that. Second Corinthians 10 and 6. 
So I'll say it again. If you correct people without the anointing of the Lord, that's judging and being unforgiving. And only God can do that. But God can do it through people. And he does it do it uh, through people who have overcome that problem or else they are hypocrites. I mean, correcting you for doing something that they're doing, like the Pharisees. In fact, Scripture says it's, it's so clearly, 1 Corinthians 6 and 5, What cannot there be found among you, one wise man who shall be able to decide between his brethren? And then 2 and 15, But he that is uh, spiritual judgeth all things, and he himself is judged of no man. In other words, God can use your spiritual man to speak judgments, and he can even use you to not forgive as a ministry for God. Jesus told his disciples that, uh, for the kingdom of God, whosoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven unto them, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained, John 20 and 23. Paul didn't forgive the man who had his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Paul threw him out because a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. He didn't forgive him for the church and the kingdom's sake. So we see there is judgment. There has to be judgment. But we have to be careful. Uh, Romans 2 and 1 says, Wherefore thou art without excuse, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For that, for that thou judgest, dost practice the same things. There it is. Yeah, hypocrisy. And 14 and 4. Who art thou that judgest the servant of another? To his own Lord he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be made to stand, for the Lord hath power to make him stand. That should be where our faith is in most cases. Uh, unless it is a willful disobedience, right? So we have to be careful that we don't judge unless God is doing it. In 1 Timothy 5 and 1, we're told, Rebuke not an elder, but exhort him as a father, the younger men as brethren. You know, I don't think a lot of times people realize that Paul is talking to Timothy there, and Timothy was an apostle. He wasn't a pastor. So if this is true for an apostle, it certainly is true for everybody else. First Timothy 5 and 19 says, Against an elder receive not an accusation except at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Them that sin reprove... In the sight of all, uh, King James uses the word rebuke, but uh, that's not right. Okay, uh, them that sin reprove in the sight of all. Again, he was talking to Timothy, that the rest also may be in fear. I know that the King James says rebuke not, and then it turns around and says rebuke. The word for rebuke in Greek is epilepso. Epi means upon or at, and pleso means to strike or to smite, hence to rebuke verbally. 
That's the word for rebuke in 1 Timothy 5 and 1. The other one in 5 and 20 is not rebuke at all. In verse 20, it's the Greek word electio. And it means to convict, confute, refute. In other words, it basically means to exhort. And that's really what our ministry is. It's to help people believe what Scripture says. There are a lot of Christians who don't believe the gospel because they have no hope and they don't see a way out of their sin. But if you believe the gospel, there is power there to come out from under the sin. So we help people believe the gospel, the good news, that you don't have to dig your way out by your own willpower. Come out of sin because Jesus already did it. There's no way to make a person believe, but you can speak faith to their heart. I know how I've treated myself when I had a problem with unbelief. Instead of studying faith, I've repented of my unbelief because it's a sin. It's a sin that Jesus took away. And I treat it like a sin that Jesus took away. People who can't get a hold of faith need to be exhorted because a lot of rebuke will just harden their hearts. You can study uh, faith until you're blue in the face, but if you still have the sin of unbelief, you won't believe. The Lord spoke to me one time when I was in a situation where I was preaching faith to a group of people who weren't catching on to it. And the Lord said to me, you're trying to give them resurrection life before death. What they have to do is repent of unbelief before they can accept faith. Repentance is death. It's a dying to self. If you don't repent, you can't take hold of resurrection life. Resurrection life is faith. You can preach faith, and you can preach faith and faith and faith. And if it doesn't go in, it's probably because the sin of unbelief or double-mindedness is there. That person has to repent first. We have to see that as Sin in our life, and sometimes a demon uh, can do this, uh, we have to confess that as a sin. Rebuke it from our life as a sin and accept ourselves as delivered because that is what Jesus did at the cross. He delivered us. And another point is that people who have a fear of rejection in their heart rarely confess their sin. They usually try to hide their sins, justify it, blame other people, etc., etc., etc. That's what they do. And it opens them up to demons. And again, you can't get power from God that way. So in either case, you have to preach faith and not constant correction, which they read as rejection. Have you noticed? Yeah. They're hurt when you correct them. And their pride takes them over, too, because of that. So it's a really a nasty downward spiral, you know. Here's a word from the Lord 
uh, from Debbie Finsky on one eight twenty four. I was asked to share what the Lord spoke to us towards the end of our worship time on Monday night. Our praise and worship time uh, unto the Lord was so great. Even before we started, uh, Michael saw Jesus and angels come into the house and, and join us. Hallelujah! Our time uh, worshiping and praising Jesus with the angels was greatly anointed. And towards the end of our worship time, Jesus said, How I desire for you to hear the sound that I and the angels are hearing of your sacrifice of honor and praise unto me from your heart this night. This is sound, so I I so always long to hear. So he wants to hear that sound, right? Uh, I bless you. My children, for I hear great oneness of sound, oneness of song, oneness of heart, and unity in your worship of love to me this night. My heart is thrilled over such oneness in spirit and holy worship. Truly, you feel the anointing of my presence, and though you feel my presence, and you too are lifted up through the power of your sacrifice of worship unto me, Yet how I desire that you could hear what we are hearing, the glorious sound of true oneness, of worshipful sound and song and heart in holy unity. Continue, my children, in this blessed oneness each time you come together as one to worship me. My children, let nothing take this away. Amen. Well, we're going to call this a Revelation of Slumber, Anonymous twelve twenty five and 22. I awoke, and my wife and I needed to attend to our son, as we were in lack of sleep the previous few weeks and desired more. We asked the Lord why we were woken early, having only slept three hours that night. Well, the flesh is weak, this is his note, um, the flesh is weak when it is sleep-deprived, which seems like a form of crucifying the flesh. It does, doesn't it? And after our son uh, went back to sleep and my wife prayed in tongues, I sat awake and continued to listen to a list of David Eel's videos, which we also sometimes play while we sleep. This particular video was stating... Uh, to harvest in the summer, to have food in the winter. And when the scriptures related to this were correlated, I felt such conviction. I was tempted to resume sleep. (laughs) The last few nights had been a battle to get up, and we knew it had been uh, the enemy trying to stop us from praising and in prayer, especially during the tougher hours of the night, 12 p.m. to 3 a.m. The enemy knew and attacked very hard again, but not to avail this time. The Lord intervened and answered our prayers with a timely wake-up with our son and being awake and listening to the video at that particular point. Are we going to commit to the blessings? (laughs) I think that's what we need to do. Well, the current season 
where we live is summer. The very last thing I would want to do is to be lazy, especially before Almighty God. So the phrase, to harvest in the summer, immediately pricked my hearing, and I listened in agreement. Then the verses, Proverbs 6, 8-11. Provideth her bread in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come as a robber, and uh, thy want as an armed man. Now, we're not condemning sleep, of course. It's a, it's a way the body restores itself. But overindulgence in it, some people do do that, and they are wasting their life, and it's a cumulative effect of wasting your life, right? So, um, related verses to this were Proverbs 10, 4, and 5. He becometh poor that worketh with a slack hand, but the hand of the diligent maketh rich. He that gathereth in summer is a wise son, but he that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. How can I truly say that I will serve the Lord and then spend a lot of time sleeping? Uh, Luke 10 and 2 says, And he said unto them, The harvest indeed is plenteous, but the laborers few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he send forth laborers into his harvest. And Luke 2 and 49, And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Knew ye not that I must be about my father's business? <laughs> Well, the enemy will sneak around trying not to awaken our defenses. You know what I mean? Uh, the thief will, will steal all, even peace, if left alone. Uh, we need to fight in the spirit and not feed the flesh. Ephesians 5 and 14 says, Wherefore it saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and the Christ shall shine upon thee. Amen. So, now is the time, and our duty is to serve our Father. Philippians 3 and 12. Not that I have already received or am already made perfect, but I follow on, if so be, that I may apprehend that for which also I was apprehended by Christ Jesus. Yes, he paid for it all, and we just need to go after it, because it's ours, right? And John 4 and 23. But an hour cometh and now is when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For even such the Father seeketh as his worshippers. And Romans 13 and 11. This knowing the season that already it is the hour for you to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. So, let us rebuke the self, flesh, lies. We are to plunder the enemy's camp and return all in restoration to the kingdom of heaven for our Father, right? Luke eleven twenty one and 22 says, When the strong, fully armed, guardeth his own court, his goods are in peace. 
But when a stronger than he shall come upon and overcome him, he taketh from him his whole armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. Well, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did when he overcame Satan and his demons. And we are commanded to gather the spoils of his defenseless kingdom. Sometimes we don't think he's defenseless, but just read that text again, you'll see that he is. And he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. So we have to either run after the devil or we'll be running from the devil, right? To the very uh, least, I woke and I wrote all this to share and continued into the day the Lord that has made for me. So Second Corinthians 6 and 2 says, For he saith, At an acceptable season I hearkened unto thee, and in a day of salvation I succored thee. Lo, now is an acceptable season. Lo, now is a day of salvation. Yes, today is a day of salvation. Okay, we're going to call this uh, a promise ring. Marie Kelton, 102522. And she said, uh, This morning I had a dream. I was in a jewelry store in the mall looking for a promise ring. I heard the voice of a woman say, when women look for a promise ring, they're looking for their wedding ring. <laughs> well, that could be true. Um, we are looking at the Lord's promises of being part of the corporate bride. It's not quite an engagement ring. It's more like a going steady ring. I don't know if they use that too much these days, but when I was young, that's what they called it going steady. It was kind of a commitment, you know. The scene changed, and I'm going on a public bus. I go sit in the back next to a window on a long bench-type seat. Well, this could represent uh, humility by taking public transportation, not independently traveling in our own vehicle. Uh, when sitting in the back of the bus, you have a view of everyone before you, possibly meaning you think others are more like a more likely choice concerning this bride situation, right? You would be the last of a long line of people in a bus like that. And Luke 14 and 10 says, but when thou art bidden, go and take the lowest place. That when he that hath bidden thee cometh, he shall say to thee, Friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have glory in the presence of all that sit at meat with thee. Mm-hmm. So humility is most important. And uh, not considering that everybody's got to be better than you because you're in the back of the bus. <laughs> and then a uh, a black girl sat next to me. At first, she was rude to me, but later in the dream, we became friends. Another girl came up and uh, told the girl to get up and move so that I didn't have to sit next to the window. So we switched. And I actually told the girl that I had become friends with 
that I didn't mind sitting by the window. So we switched back. <laughs> That's humility, right? Whatever pleases you. Uh, the window is a better view of progress. Obviously, as the bus moves along, you get to see where you're going and where you've been, you know. I had the promise ring uh, on my ring finger. The ring was a silver ring with scriptures on it. I had this type of ring before in real life. There are many promises given to us, and we need to hold on to them and speak in agreement with them in faith to receive them, as we know. Hosea 2, 19-20 says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in justice, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. Proverbs 7 and 1 through 3 says, My son, keep my words, and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the tablet of thy heart. Bind them upon my fingers. That was the ring she had, right? The word of God on the ring. And Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 8. And these words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be for frontlets between thine eyes. She said, I knew in the dream that my husband, and she has in parenthesis Jesus, was watching me to see how I treated the people on this bus. Well, we've already seen that it was kind of symbolic of humility, and um, and what she did was also very humble. So the Lord is watching us as we run this race. He's always watching us, and we are taught not to judge others and to treat others as we would want to be treated and show no uh, respect of persons. And those who live this way have a better chance of being chosen, right? Matthew 7 and 12. All things, therefore, whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, even so do you also unto them. For this is the law and the prophets. James 2, 1 through 6. My brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your synagogue a man with a gold ring in fine clothing, and there come in also a poor man in vile clothing, and you have regard to him that weareth the fine clothing, and say, Sit thou here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, Stand thou there, or sit under my footstool. 
Do you not make distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, did not God choose them that are poor as to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to them that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and themselves drag you before the judgment seats? Oh, yeah, they, they use their power over you, right? Okay, we're going to call this revelation uh, spiritual fornication. Winnie Asagata, 7:29:22. I dreamt I was in a light blue car talking to a young man that I recognized from YouTube on a video call on my phone. I don't know the, his name. This young man is a Christian and has a pretty good testimony. Uh, and hell revelation. I believe he is still pretty young in the Lord, but to my knowledge, he walks in what he knows. And as I was talking to this young man in the dream, he began to tell me about the problem he's been having with fornication. In the dream, he meant physical fornication, but in real life, he is married, and I don't believe that this is physical, but spiritual. So, okay, I think that's probably true. Uh, spiritual fornication for a Christian would be like having a relationship with someone besides the Lord. A lot of people do have that. Um, uh, having this spiritual relationship with uh, men... Uh, religions, so on and so forth. Um, he said he was struggling with this and did not know how to overcome it, although he did not want this in his life. All right. Well, people do need to know how to overcome it. The gospel is very important in that way, and we've been talking about that earlier. Um, I told the young man that it was a demon, and it needed to be cast out. I went to look uh, for David to cast this demon out of this young man, and I found him sitting in a temple on a bench on the right. Uh, instead of the bench facing uh, forward, though, it was facing the other side where the windows were. And I could hear the people worshiping and praising the Lord. David was joining in worship but it was also as if he was watching outside the windows for something. And she has in parenthesis, looking for the Lord's coming in us. A confirming text given to Winnie um, said in Second Peter 3 and 12, looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God. Yes, <laughs> to be ready for the Lord's coming for us in death or in the air, we must be wanting his coming in us now. In 1 John 2 and 28, And now, my little children, abide in him, that if he shall be manifested, meaning shine forth from us, right, 
we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that every one also that doeth righteousness is begotten of him. Amen. So the most important thing we do here on this earth is make sure Jesus is coming in us. Um, and if that's true, he will come for us. So she went on to say, As David came out, I told him about the young man who needed deliverance from this spirit. David then laid hands on me and began to pray and cast a spirit out of me. My thoughts in the dream were that he did this so that I could be a clean vessel to cast the demon out of the young man as well. Well, the Lord uh, was reminding us that our authority is based in holiness. Matthew 7 and 3. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me cast out the mote out of thine eye, and lo, the beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. After this, I went back to call the young man on my phone and cast his spirit out of him. And as I was looking for a place to call, I passed through a recreation room or cafeteria where Matthew Stewart and Obi were getting ready to play drums. But he said that he would wait until I made the call so it wouldn't be too loud. Distractions. Always distractions, right? We've been hearing a lot from the Lord about distractions. Let's don't let it happen, right? I went back to my car instead to call the young man and cast the spirit out, and then I woke up. So the chapter I received for this dream by faith is, and uh, it was long, it was longer than I have time for, so I, I selected portions of Second Peter 3, 1-18 in which we are warned to depart quickly from worldly lusts and be prepared to escape judgment. Knowing this first, that in the last days mockers shall come with mockery, walking after their own lusts. And then in verse 7, But the heavens that now are and the earth by the same word have been stored up for fire being reserved against the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. <laughs> we're there, folks, we're there. Verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you, word, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, He's patiently waiting for the fruit, right? And verse 11, Seeing that these things are thus all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness, looking for and earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God? That's what looking out the window represents. 
Verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things, give diligence that you may be found in peace without spot and blemishless in his sight. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote unto you. And verse 17 you therefore, beloved, knowing these things beforehand, beware lest being carried away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. All right. And we're going to call this one Run Your Own Race. Samuel Fire, 5, 20, I saw a man running in a race on a track from his perspective. Uh, and he has a note uh, representing our race to manifest Jesus in the time Father has personally given each one of us. Seeing the race from his perspective uh, represents only considering himself or self-righteousness like the Pharisees. Well, Hebrews 12 and 1 tells us, uh, Therefore let us also, seeing that we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. More distractions you see in there, right? There were many others racing, too, in their own lanes. The man looked to his left and right at the other runners, and he criticized the others next to him. That's a pretty dangerous thing to do. Second Corinthians 10 and 12 says, For we are not bold to number or compare ourselves with certain of them that commend themselves. But they themselves measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves with themselves are without understanding. And also Matthew 7 and 1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. Well, truly, it, we're in different lanes and we're running a different kind of race. We're all created for different purposes in the kingdom. And some people want to judge everybody by themselves. Romans 14 and 4 says, Who art thou that judgest the servant of another? To his own Lord he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be made to stand, for the Lord hath power to make him stand. That should be our consideration in most cases. Uh, James 4, 11 through 12 says, Speak not one against another, brethren. He that speaketh against a brother, or judgeth his brother, speaketh against the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judgest the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. One only is the lawgiver and judge, even he who is able to save and to destroy. But who art thou, that thou judgest thy neighbor? I then felt that he failed to see that he had slowed down to criticize the others and now and not focus on running his own race. 
And when we keep our eyes on the goal of the prize and we see Jesus and others, we are capable to run and finish faster because we're not going to judge, right? We'll give them time to grow. In 1 Corinthians 9 and 24, we're told, Know ye not that they that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Even so run that you may attain. Well, the one who wins the prize, of course, is Jesus. He already won it, right? So we must run legally by abiding in him. And Philippians 2 and 12. So then, my beloved, even as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, okay. I think that's a few um, different revelations about ways for us to handle ourselves in the days to come so that we receive grace from God. Father, we thank you. Um, we all grow at a different pace, and we've all been given different different gifts of uh, of words and knowledge. Some of us have been had a gift of revelation and knowledge more than others, and we're held more accountable because of that. The, the more we know, the more we need to humble ourselves, right? So, Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus that you would grant each one and every one of us uh, this gift of humility to run the race, uh, not to judge others who are maybe stumbling in some areas of their life, but we may be doing the same thing. And uh, as we grow, we outgrow these things, and as they grow, they outgrow these things. But it's a different timing and a different responsibility. So, Lord, we ask you uh, to give us grace as we give others grace. And we ask, uh, Lord, that you um, uh, bless us and draw us unto yourself and cause us to keep our eyes on our lane, you know, um, and, uh, and, and looking to the end of the lane, we see Jesus and we're running towards him. And uh, he's giving us more and more grace as we run and as we believe more of what we understand. And we thank you, Lord, for doing that for us for working in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Thank you so much, Father, for this. We uh, appreciate you so much, Lord. You've already accomplished everything. We're just entering into those works that you finished from the foundation of the world. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, saints, God bless you and keep you. And now Michael's coming, and uh, he's going to share a word with you, too. So, Father, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Uh, we believe you, we love you, and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, saints. It's good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, I just praise you and I glorify you. And I thank you for your mercy and your grace upon us, Lord. In these days, and Lord, I thank you for your overcoming power of the Holy Spirit that resides in us, Lord, to help us 
not to stumble in our walk with you, Lord. And I praise you for the sanctification that you have given us to walk this sanctified life, the power to walk this sanctified life through your Holy Spirit. And I ask and I pray, Father God, that you be with us today. Help us uh, and anoint us to give out this word on sanctification. And I thank you and I praise you for it, Father. And let it be a blessing to everyone who listens this day. Praise God forevermore. Well, that's what I want to talk about today is sanctification. As you know, most of you know, sanctification is not an instantaneous process. But entering into faith is instantaneous, but the manifestation of that faith is not instantaneous, and neither is sanctification. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body did thou prepare for me. In other words, God made it possible for Jesus himself, who's our high priest, to offer up as a sacrifice his own body and his own blood. Verse 6, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I am come. Because in the roll of the book, it's written of me. To do thy will, O God, verse 10, by which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, that word sanctified means separated. And the way it's used in the Bible is separation from sin unto God. We've been separated unto him by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ and watch it for all. Well, why is that? Well, because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All mankind was in the loins of Adam when he fell into sin and when he died. But in Christ will all be bought, uh, brought back to life. The seed of Christ is his word, and the seed of Adam is a physical seed. So when Christ was resurrected, we were all resurrected because the word in him is what recreates us. Glory to God. In the parable of the sower, Christ sowed the seed of the word in the hearts of men. And only one of the four soils he mentioned bore fruit, 36 and 100 fold. That's a shame, but that's the way it is. There's a lot of people for different reasons end up ultimately rejecting the word. And that's God's power to bring us into his life. And so the offering up of the body of Christ once and for all gave us by faith this sanctification. And we enter into it by faith. The manifestation of it is for those who abide in that faith in Christ to see the manifestation of sanctification, which is separation from the world and separation from sin. Now, the Jews, they only had forgiveness. And there's too many people out there that are too satisfied to have only what the Jews had. 
But I'm telling you, they ain't going to bear fruit that way. The only thing they talk about is forgiveness and the time that they got saved, the time that they stepped over the line and accepted Jesus as their Savior or whatever. Folks, that's selling for too little, considering what God has provided for us. God wants the manifestation of salvation in us, the manifestation of sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, And every priest indeed stands day by day, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sin. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. And it's going to happen. Folks, we're coming into that day, glory to God. And I pray, God, that every one of us humble ourselves first. Then verse 14 says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. This one offering that he gave brought by faith perfection to every one of us that believes. Through the blood covering, God sees us as perfect. As long as we walk in the light that we have, and when we sin, we can always go to him and confess it. And the promise is here in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Glory be to God. So we have perfection by faith in that way. But I'm going to share with you what is that God is going to manifest his perfection, is that God's going to manifest his perfection in some people. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not trying to say that perfection is according to man's mind or man's ideas, but according to what God called maturity in the scriptures. And he's already given that to us by uh, uh, by this gift of for by one offering he has perfected. Hebrews 10 and 14. When God gives you something, that doesn't mean you're actually going to receive it. You have to receive it by faith. Then you have to endure in that faith to see it manifested in your life. Matthew 10, 22, but he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved, glory to God. Somebody's out there right now saying, but I thought we were saved by faith. Yeah, we are saved by faith. But faith is assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11 and 1. A person is believing for something that you don't yet see when you ask God for something by faith. When God tells us he's given us perfection, we could look at the natural mirror and say, no, that ain't true, but we accept it because God said it. And that's what the scripture teaches in a lot of places. And that's what we need to believe. Hebrews 10 and 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after he has said, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After these, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and upon their mind. Also will I write them. We need for God to put his laws into our heart, don't we? 
Philippians 2 and 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we need to understand that God can cause us to walk upright before him, and he will for those who walk by faith in him. Glory be to God. For God to be able to put his law in our heart, that is our desire, our mind, and our understanding, means that he can bring it to pass in us. Ain't nobody claiming that man of his own will can be perfect, because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, Romans 3 and 20 said. So without grace, man can neither understand God's word nor bring it to pass, because it's God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2 and 13 says. Hebrews 10, 17 says, And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now let's go to Hebrews 10, 26. Just as there's people out there that like to take uh, 14 and 17 verses out of Hebrews 10 to mean as a means to uh, abuse God's grace. But here's what God says that this sacrifice only covers certain sins, and it don't cover other sins. Look at verse 26, Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire, which shall devour the adversaries. And so we see that God says, if a person's sin is willful, premeditated, if they know it's wrong and they're going to do it anyway with their will, and they're not fighting against it, then there's no sacrifice. There's no blood covering for those sins. Then there's people out there who say it's all under the blood. But if you read on, you'll find otherwise. Verse 28, a man that has set at naught Moses' law dies without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. And how much sore punishment think ye shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Walking in willful disobedience does these things. It accounts the blood with which we were sanctified to be unholy and grieves the Holy Spirit. God says there's no sacrifice for such sins. We ought to fear the Lord and we ought to turn away from those things. The text makes very plain twice that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But of course, Paul is bragging on the blood of Jesus, which can take away sin. Why is that? Because the blood that we inherited from our parents passed on to us the sin nature. Leviticus 17 and 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's the soul of the flesh is in the blood. The blood that Jesus passed on to us doesn't have that sin nature. We've got a new spiritual father. Just as our natural fathers passed on to us the sin and the curse, our spiritual father passed on to us his righteousness and his purity, glory to God. He poured out his blood for us, and he became a substitute for us. Remember Exodus 12, the Passover chapter, 
where the Israelites sacrificed the lamb and the death angel passed over. It smote the Egyptians, but it passed right over the Israelis. God had mercy on them because they sacrificed the lamb. <clears throat> and that tells us that the curse fell on the lamb. He bore the curse of their sins, and for that they were set free. And the parable in Leviticus 16 covers the same thing. Look at verse 6. And Aaron shall present the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. Aaron was the high priest, and he represents Jesus Christ. And the atonement was the covering. His house mentioned here represents those who are the house of the Lord. Verse 7, And he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the door of the tent meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Well, that word Azazel means departure or removal. That's the God or the goat of removal. And it's also called the scapegoat because this goat escaped the judgment of God like it shows. Look at verse 9. And Aaron shall present the goat upon which the lot fell for the Lord. Well, the Lord, the, the Lord was, was the sacrifice, right? And offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel, removal or departure, shall be set alive before the Lord to make atonement for him, to send him away for Azazel into the wilderness. So we got one goat that escaped the judgment of God because the lot of the Lord fell on the sacrificial goat. And Azazel escaped and departed into the wilderness. But of course, when we discover the sacrifice of the Lord that's been given to us, we immediately go into the wilderness of the lack of man's ability and provision, and that's where we learn to walk by faith. The wilderness represents no sustenance or provision or ability from the world. We should immediately begin to walk by faith in God and give up trust in ourselves and in our abilities and our works of the law, works of religion, and works of the flesh. We've we got to give all of those up because none of those are going to give us any standing before God. And, of course, it's easy for us to live in the world. But to be of the world, it comes natural to us. Whereas walking by faith does not. But God says the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous meaning just also. Habakkuk 2 and 4. That's what pleases God. He wants every one of us to be a wilderness-type person. And we can see here that the Lord took our place when the curse of sin and, de and of death was put on him. And we have escaped. We are the scapegoat. Well, there's another significant parable concerning this replacement. It's found in Levit Leviticus 14 and 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought into unto the priest. A lot of people 
have seen that leprosy in the Bible represents the, the curse of sin and that it totally eats a person alive. And that's what sin does. And the priest shall go forth out of the camp. In other words, suffering the reproach of Christ. We don't need to shelter ourselves in the numbers of apostate people of God. The majority of God's people have always been wrong. We have to be willing to go contrary to the flow of God's people in this world in order to be right with God. And the Verse 3, And the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed to living clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop and the priest shall command to kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water and literally this is the word living water the priest kill one bird over living water as can be imagined the blood ripped into the water and we know that according to first john 5 these are two things by which we receive life, and that's the water and the blood. The water, of course, represents the word of God, and the blood represents the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, who's our sacrifice. Then continue on with uh, verse 6. As for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. In other words, we have to be washed in the blood. And he shall sprinkle upon him, that he has to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean, and shall let go the living bird into the open field. So that living bird represents us. The Lord himself bore the curse, and we've been set free, Lord of God. Then verse 8, and he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes. Well, clothing represents a person's actions, a person's works. Revelation 19.8 tells us that the brilliant garments of the bride are the righteous acts of the saints. And so we wash our clothes. Romans 13 and 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. That's a warning not to walk in the flesh, folks. Leviticus 14 and 8. And he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that he shall come out into the camp, but shall dwell outside his tent seven days. But his hair represents submission. A woman's long hair is given to her as a sign of submission. We don't want to be submitted to this world. And we don't want to be submitted to sin either. We want to change our submissions when we get cleansed, glory to God. Cleanse us, Lord, glory be to God. The Lord has traded places with us, glory to God. He has borne the penalty that we owed for our sin. He paid the debt that he didn't owe. We owed the debt that he only he could pay. So he's taking that he's taking care of that for us. And that's our starting place in the kingdom. Now it's uh, it's sad, but there are a lot of people out there that stay right there. 
They don't go beyond that, being satisfied with the forgiveness. But you need to understand something, that it's possible for a person to be forgiven and still not bear the fruit to enter the kingdom. And most people don't even keep the forgiveness. That's the problem. If a person is satisfied with only forgiveness and not the life of Christ, then they are satisfied way too easily. Since the Lord took our place, there's a lot more to cleansing than just forgiveness. Colossians one twenty two says, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. He reconciled us in order to present us blemishes, blemishless and unreprovable. God made a reconciliation. That word reconciliation, apocalypso, means to exchange completely. That means the Lord traded places with us. He took our sin and our curse and he gave us his righteousness and his blessing. And that's what reconciliation means. And the purpose was so that he might present you and me holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. So we see here that our faith in the sacrifice, our faith in our position in God is what causes God to give us grace and empowers us to bring to pass the cleansing. And it's really important that we know that. We're not going to walk righteously without faith, folks, because faith is the substance of the things hoped for while the evidence is not yet seen. We're accepting something we don't see yet so that God can do it in us. We're accepting it on the grounds that the Bible says we have this. Read it again, verse 22. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blemish and unreprovable before him. If so be, there's the condition, that you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached in all creation under heaven. If a person holds fast to the faith, that the Lord has reconciled them, then he will bring it to pass. And it's as simple as that. He will manifest his life in you. He'll manifest his deliverance from the curse in you. Folks, he'll do it. We have sold ourselves very short by listening to people who didn't really have a desire for holiness in the first place but in many cases, uh, cases had a desire to be justified right where they were. What we need to do is repent. What God wants is righteous people, and he's given us the covering. That's the first part of this work in our life. And in order for us to have this relationship with God, in order to walk by faith and not feel con- condemnation, we got to have this covering. We have to have this covering. We receive this covering, this atonement, by faith. We accept that our, our sins have been put upon Lord Jesus Christ, that we no longer have them, that we're now free, glory to God. Second Corinthians 5 and 17, Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. But all things are of God who reconciled, Cotalosso, us to himself through Christ and gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled us. He exchanged us through Christ. Verse 20, we are ambassadors, therefore, on behalf of Christ, as though God were endearing, I'm sorry, entreating by us, we beseech you on behalf of Christ, be you reconciled to God. Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, we're new creatures now by faith. We're new creatures because of what the Lord did through Jesus Christ in reconciling us by faith. Remember what faith is? It's the surest of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11 to 1. And we're accepting something on the grounds that God said so. And we believe it. We believe he's good to his word. The Bible says he cannot lie. So we're trusting in him. Now, as we walk in that faith, we get two things. We get justification, which means accounted righteous, because we uh, we believe the good report that God has given us. And since we're accounted righteous, we get grace from God. Glory to God. Ephesians 2 and 8 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Because of our faith, he gives us the grace that we need, the favor that we need to walk before him and be righteous. And he brings to pass, he, he manifests the reconciliation. We, all, we, we know all, he already made reconciliation. But as far as we're concerned, that's faith. Because we don't see it manifested. But what God really wants is for uh, for it to be manifested in our lives, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Second Corinthians 5.21. And so because God has done this, we believe it, that God gives us grace to walk into. And that's the plan. And it's real simple. But God did not leave us with just forgiveness. He wants us to go the next step. And that's the cleansing, glory to God. First John 1 and 7, but if we walk in the light, the light is the word that we have. James 4 and 17, to him therefore that knows to do good and doeth it not to him, it is a sin. If a person is walking in the light that they have, they can't do any better than that. God will not attribute wrong to a person until they know it's wrong. Hebrews 10, 26, for if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of truth. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. We see here that knowledge is what makes us responsible. But without knowledge, we can't bear fruit. So we're in a kind of a catch 22 here. We can't hide ourselves from knowledge to keep from being responsible because if we do, we won't bear fruit. The next step is walking in the light. First John 1 and 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Now, back in Romans chapter 3, we find the people who were not walking in the light, but walking in rebellion. Then they found, by faith, a covering. And that covering is the same one that hides us from the angry judgment of God. And as we walk by faith under that covering and not by condemnation, because God has forgiven us of our sins, and he has cast him in the depths of the ocean. Our fellowship with God brings to us this imputed righteousness, and it brings us this favor called grace. Oh, glory to God. The grace from God is to cause us to be able to walk in the light. We have a desire to walk in the light, a desire to please God. And walking under the covering brings that forgiveness. Walking in the light brings the cleansing. We're here to receive something that they didn't receive in the Old Testament because the blood could not take away their sin under that covenant. And so if a person is in a church where they're just satisfied to be forgiven sinners, where they say you're always going to be a sinner, don't hope for anything more than that. It's because they don't believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't believe God who worketh in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. They're quite content to be sinners and ignore what is written in the Bible so many times for their own greedy purposes. And the truth is that the Lord wants us to walk in the light so that we get the cleansing and not just the covering. God would like to remove the covering. And he would like to see you a perfected son of God. And the question is, can he do that? Not, can we do that? How many of you know you can't do that? It has to be God. Jesus said in Matthew nine twenty nine, according to your faith, be it done unto you. Matthew 8 and 13, as thou hast believed, so be it done unto you. So if a person believes that they're always going to be a sinner, merely saved by grace and not by manifestation, then they'll be content with that, but they ain't going to bear no fruit. And if you turn back to Romans again, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25, it says this, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, that's a covering, through faith in his blood to show his righteousness because of the passing over of the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that has made faith in Jesus. Folks, he justifies us. That is, he counts us righteous when we have faith in what we just read here that the Lord Jesus has borne our curse. We can do nothing about our sin nature, but he can, and he has. We believe that he has taken away the sin nature that causes us to sin. He's dealing with the root problem, not the effect. If a person deals only with the effect, then they're going to deal with it for all of their life. We're going to prove that God takes away the sin nature and brings us to perfection. 
verse 27. Where then is the glory? It's excluded. So we see that we can't take any credit because it's by grace. We also cannot judge anybody else in whose shoes we have not walked. We can't judge anybody that doesn't repent. It's a gift of God. It's grace. And only God grants repentance. Those who judge other people, in many cases, they're very self-righteous in their glory because they don't understand that God gave them this gift by his own mercy. He gave them the gift of faith. Ephesians 2 and 8, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Not of works that no man should glory. Romans 3.27, By what manner of law, of works, nay, but by law of faith? Is it by the works of pleasing the Old Testament law, or the law of man's religion in the New Testament, or any other law that we made up for ourselves, or even any other law that we know is the Word of God? No, it's not our ability that brings this forth. It has to do with God working freely in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Glory to God. This is the only way righteousness is possible, friend. Because as we've seen, not one person of their own ability or works was called righteous before God. Not one. Verse 28, we reckon, therefore, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from a man's ability and efforts to keep God's law or his efforts to be pleasing unto God. A man is justified by faith. Hebrews 11 and 6. And without faith it is impossible to be well pleasing unto him. Otherwise it wouldn't be possible. Because our own sin nature would keep us from being able to be well pleasing unto God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 29 says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yea, of Gentiles also. If so be that God is one, and he shall justify the circumcision by faith, and the uncircumcision by through faith. Do we then take the law of none effect through faith? God forbid, nay, we establish the law. So we fulfill the letter of the law in the Spirit, and we fulfill the law by faith. Then Romans 4 and 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, hath found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he hath whereof to glory. Because that's self-effort, and a person can glory in that, but not toward God. For what saith the Scriptures? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. So, therefore, when we believe God, we are reckoned righteous. That's a good deal, folks, especially for people who are coming from the direction that we're coming from with this fallen nature that's not able to keep the law of God. Verse 4, Now to him that worketh the reward is not reckoned as of grace, but as of debt. In other words, if a person could do it by their own self-efforts, God would owe it to them. But we can't. Because evil men can't be good. And our old fallen nature won't permit us to be good. And the whole point becomes that the old fallen nature has been crucified with Christ. Galatians 2 and 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
And it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's what Paul taught us. And that's the whole secret. We confess the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. Reconciliation has been made. Romans 4 and verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Yeah, God can justify the ungodly. If not, the blood, the blood covering wouldn't be any good for any of us. And if a person has one sin, that person is a sinner. His faith is reckoned for righteousness, even as David also pronounced blessings upon the man unto whom God reckoned righteousness apart from works. Are you failing God? He's got the answer. Get the eyes off of your works and your efforts and accept Jesus, what he did at the cross. And that's where grace comes from. And that's how grace will work in you to willing to do of God's good pleasure. And if you're failing God, it's because too much self-effort is involved. Amen to that. Verse 7, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not reckon sin. He won't even impute sin. He won't hold us responsible for our failures. <clears throat> if you're an unbeliever in the world and you've just under and you're just now understanding the gospel today, you believe that Jesus took away your sins. You accept that fact and you walk in it by faith until you see it happen. Glory to God. Remember, faith calls the things that be not as though they were. Faith says this, God, you're true. I believe you. I ain't got no ability on my own to please you. But I know that you can work in me to will it to do of your good pleasure. And I know that I am pleasing unto you when I accept what you say about what Jesus did for me. And I believe in what Jesus did for me. And if you're a Christian who has been failing God, and you read that te text in Romans chapter 4, in many cases you probably thought, well, that's just for sinners. That's for lost people. No, it's for all of us. Because we are continually, continually justified by faith. And we have to endure in that faith constantly. We have to accept what the Bible says about us. Not looking at ourselves and not looking at our failures. But getting our eyes on the solution, which is Jesus Christ. Getting our eyes on Jesus. All the time. Looking at ourselves and our failures is going to cause us to be walking under condemnation. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on Jesus. A person cannot have condemnation and faith at the same time. We have to get our eyes on Jesus and accept the fact that he took away our sins. We don't have to have them anymore. We are justified through those words and through those thoughts. Justification brings us grace. And without grace, we can't walk with God. We need his favor to override our old fallen nature, without which we can only do what comes naturally to us. So when he gives us grace and we walk pleasing unto him, then we just keep walking. And he keeps giving more and more grace. And as he works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, to mature us in Christ, the things that used to tempt us don't tempt us anymore. 
We just continue that walk until we conquer enemy after enemy, lust after lust in our land, just like those Israelites who were sent into their promised land to put to death the old man who ruled in their land. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that this life is that land. The old man, the lust of the flesh, ruled in that land until he told the Israelites to take that sword of the Spirit, go in there, and whack to death their enemies. And truly, that's what we're doing. We're using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible, the Word of God, against our enemies, those old lusts of the flesh, to put them to death, glory to God. The Israelite can take that land and rule that land that raised the crop, which is the fruit. They can take the enemy's house away and rule and live in that house. And that's where we are. We're walking with the Lord to fulfill this particular part of it. He's the one who's done it. And there's some people out there right now saying, we can't be perfect. We can't overcome sin. There ain't no such verse in Scripture. The truth is, the Lord has already conquered our sin. He's already made us free from sin, Lord of God. Romans 6, verse 11. Even so, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. In other words, consider it done. God's already taken care of it. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, glory to God. That's awesome. We reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Because it was done by our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross, glory to God. He took away our sins and gave us his life and his righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Wherefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, they are become new. Begin to accept what God says about you. It's a blessed hope, and it's the only way. And the subject of faith versus manifestations, it can be very confusing if a person doesn't know the nature of how God manifests his wonderful promises in our life. And there's also a revelation of God's grace in Zechariah chapter 3. Let's look at that. Now, I know that this is a prophetic te uh, text, but I just want to point out the grace that God has given to us through Jesus Christ and the fact that God expects what we've been given by faith to be manifested in our lives. Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to be his adversary. A lot of you know that Revelation 12.10 speaks of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them before God day and night. And that at the time of tribulation, he's going to be cast down. That's going to be his lot. So here he is standing to be the accuser and adversary of Joshua. By the way, Joshua is the same name as Yeshua or Jesus. That name Joshua in Hebrew is Y-H-W-H. That's the te te uh, tetragrammation and means salvation. We can tell this is speaking about the body of Christ because we are the ones who have had owned the filthy garments that are spoken about in the text here. 
number two. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Yea, the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now, Jerusalem, of course, is the city of God. And from Hebrews 12, we know that Jerusalem represents the holy people of God who have overcome. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 3 says, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take the filthy garments from off him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with rich apparel. And I want you to notice that he calls the filthy garments thine iniquity. That was his sins. Verse 5, And I said, Let them set a clean mitre upon his head. So they set a clean mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The filthy garments represented his iniquity. That represented his evil life. And once again, we can see here that this is talking about the body of Christ. The Lord has spoken, and we have been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Satan, though he accuses us, is not going to find any place in the body of Christ as long as we walk by faith under the blood. And these filthy garments are pointed out in some other places. Look at Romans 13 and 11. And this, knowing the season, that already it is time for you to awake out of sleep, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. Folks, that's a strange statement to a lot of people because they only think the only thing that they can think is I am saved but they think they're saved by manifestation when they're really saved by faith which is what the Bible says as long as a person is saved by faith they're claiming something because the scripture says it but not because of manifestation and there's a difference between what we have as a position in Christ and what we have with what we manifest on this earth. And the position is for the purpose of bringing us the manifestation. It says, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. And that's talking about the manifestation of salvation. Verse 12, the night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. We're casting off works that are considered works of darkness. And that's the filthy garments. We put on the garments of the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. These lusts are manifested through our unclean works. 
So our garments represents works. Revelation 19 and 8, and it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And that word bright here is lampros, and it means radiant. So the righteous acts of the saints is our putting on that garment, the armor of light. Jude tells us that we ought to even hate the garment that's spotted by the flesh. Jude chapter 1, verse 33, or 23. And some save, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to guard you from stumbling, and to set you before the presence of his glory, without blemish and exceeding joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and power before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Even to those whose garments are spotted by the flesh, which symbolizes some works of the flesh that are being done, God is able to set us in his presence without blemish. Glory to God. Well, what enables God to do that? Well, he gives us the gift of our position in Christ. What we have in heavenly places by faith. And through our faith, he brings us the manifestation that is without blemish and exceeding joy that he speaks about right here. He's talking about taking away their iniquity and removing the filthy garments and given to his people this rich apparel. A lot of people want to stop right there and see their position in Christ and just hold to that without understanding that their position has a purpose. It's a means to an end. And what we have in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2 and 6, is perfection, which we've been given in Christ. But as long as we only have it by faith, we don't have it by manifestation. What God is interested in is for us to receive the answers to our prayers and the fulfillment of his promises. Matter of fact, he demands that. Now let's go back to Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 6. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou also shalt judge my house, and shalt also keep my courts, and I will give thee a place of access among these that stand by. Now, would it be a problem for anybody to walk in the Lord's ways if their filthy garments had already been taken off, and they were given clean garments, which are the clean works? And that's what that means, is basically walking in the Lord's way. But as we see, he's given this to us as a gift in heavenly places. And what we have to do is to fight for that gift. Now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and men of violence take it by force, Matthew 11 and 12 tells us. Jesus said that. We have to fight the good fight of faith to take what's ours in heavenly places and bring it right down here and let it be manifested in us. That word manifest is to become seen, to make visible. In other words, 
become visible in the earthly realm. And although maturity and perfection are already ours in heaven, since we are crucified with Christ and we don't live anymore, Christ lives in us. God expects that to be manifested. He expects us to take faith in the promises he has given to us and to fight the good fight of faith, to lay hold on life that is eternal. Hebrews 10.10, by which will we have been sanctified. And we read how this sanctification means separation from sin unto God, which is exactly what God gave us in this revelation in Zechariah 3. He's taken away our iniquity. He's given us new garments. By which we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, that's our position in Christ. That's what we have by faith. And some people think that that's enough. That's all they want. They just want to be forgiven. Never mind Jesus taking away their sins and giving them his life. They're satisfied to just accept that they believe this has already been manifested. But the truth is we have to fight for it. Yeah, it's already been given. We've already been sanctified. That is, separated from sin unto God. But look at the very next verse, in verse 11. And every priest indeed stands day by day, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. And since it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, Jesus came to take away sin, not just to forgive us, but to take away the very nature of that sin itself. And some say, no, no, they're afraid of this teaching because it makes them responsible to give up their former life, that sinful life, to give up their filthy garments. The truth is going to be manifested in the earth, and God's true people are going to accept it in these days, glory to God. Verse 12, but he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. What enemies do you think God wants to be the footstool of his feet? What enemies do you want to be the footstool of your feet? What do you want to have dominion over? Well, we've been told that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be in Romans 8 and 7. The carnal fleshly mind is the enemy of God. And when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, God called it, through Paul, baptism in 1 Corinthians 10 and 2. The Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea. That old man died. That is the enemy that kept Israel in bondage. The enemy that sought to drag him back, drag him back into bondage. God conquered that through the baptism, which, as we know, is an application of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in his people. The Lord has given us this great promise that he has already sacrificed or sanctified us through the offering of Christ. But now he's sitting down, he's waiting, and he's expecting that his enemies will be made the footstool of his feet. In other words, what he accomplished at the cross, he wants to see manifested. That is the death of the old man and the resurrection of the new man. That's what he wants, and that's what we want. The desire to be holy. Glory to God. Well, praise God forevermore. We're out of time, folks. Y'all be blessed, and we'll see you next time, God willing. Can quench 
thirsting soul. Pure as water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus. Jesus, I trust in. 